Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast, and uh, we're so glad you're listening. Thanks for hanging with us. We know it's a it's a crazy time, but um, Isaac and I we've uh, we've gotten back into a rhythm, man. We're we're sort of we're doing it now again after a long. It felt like a hiatus, but it wasn't like intentional. It just global pandemic ruined everything. Oh yeah, global apocalyptic <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> but we're back the now. Beat. Out of the ocean. Yeah, but it's okay because Christ ascended and rules and reigns as king, which we'll talk about on this episode. But uh, we're back now. We're like, you know, almost every week now pumping out an episode. We have a really good one today uh, with our friend Patrick Schreiner. Um, and we'll, we'll introduce him in a moment, but we, we do want to share a couple of things. Uh, Patrick currently, as we're recording this, is on faculty at Western Seminary, and then um, he's actually transitioning to a new role uh, that we'll, you know, we'll, we'll share with you guys in a little bit. But uh, we thought it'd be a good segue just because Patrick's sort of our Western Seminary, you know, comrade. We um, This podcast and the Regeneration Project as a ministry is a ministry of Western Seminary. And Isaac, you're a graduate of Western. And so we just, we thought we would share a couple of bits of really exciting news. One that we've shared with you already. Another one that uh, we, I don't think we've talked about publicly at all that involves Isaac and I and Western. Uh, but the first one I'll share, um, we've talked about it already, but right here in the Bay Area, and by right here, I mean where Isaac and I live. We know you're listening from all over the country and the world. But at least here in the Bay Area, um, you know, th- continuing theological education is challenging for a number of reasons. Uh, it's expensive. It's really time intensive. And yet it's also maybe uniquely important in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves. And so we're launching a, a Bay Area Western Seminary master's degree cohort that's going to be curated by Dan Kimball, who is the director of the Regeneration Project and on faculty at Western. And and it's um, it's it it nails all those things that that so many of us are looking for. It's a cohort model where you get together in person just once a month, so it's not as time intensive. You do a lot of the reading and writing on your own uh, with some online interaction with the still in person interaction once a month, um, and then it's also cost effective. It's essentially it comes down to about like half the price of a normal master's degree. So if you're looking for something like that, if you're looking to continue your education, even if you're looking just to audit and to learn, um, check out uh, all the info for that. You can just Google Western Seminary Bay Area Cohort, and it'll take you right to the page. Or you can go to westernseminary.edu. Um, so that's launching in the fall. And then, uh, Isaac, why don't you tell people, this is like news breaking right now, because we've never shared yeah. this before, but it's official yeah. now. Isaac, why don't you drop the news about a fun, exciting thing that you and I are doing this fall? Uh, Jay and I have bought property in North Dakota <laughs> and we're starting a little commune up it's there a commune. to, to an avoid the apocalypse. Open invite to all. I've been practicing my cooking during the coronavirus, just learning how to cook yeah. stews in mass to feed you all. So come join us. Yeah. So uh, Jay and I will be teaching a course at Western Seminary that we're incredibly excited about, Subversive Gospel-Centered Preaching in the Digital Age. Mm. Um And we've been working hard on the content of this, thinking about it for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And the backstory is this. We've just observed the changing nature of how preaching is done. Technically, homiletics is done. And a, a lot of times what people thought was effective or what worked 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it it just doesn't work anymore. It's not connecting with people. It's not reaching people. And so we've worked really hard to dial in um, what, what does preaching need to look like in the digital age? And we were thinking and wrestling about this and and discussing it before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were already in the digital age before this, this was here, but with the global pandemic it accelerated everything in the digital age. So we are more now, for good or bad, and in my mind, there's a lot of bad coming out of it, but we are more saturated in the digital age than ever. So all the more reason that we need to rethink and retool how we're preaching, teaching, and engaging people. So Jay and I have been doing this. It's it's just 
going to be a course on teaching and preaching in the digital age, and we're excited about it. Um, it's going to be in the fall of this year, the first time we'll be teaching it, and mm-hmm. you'll be able to find more info about it very soon on Western Seminary's page. Yeah. Yeah. So we're excited. So if you're interested in preaching, if you are a preacher, uh, maybe you're a student at Western already and you're like, oh man, that sounds like an interesting elective course to, um, to fill up a couple of units. Uh, we'd love to have you be a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Okay. On to today's episode today, Isaac and I are chatting with our friend, Patrick Schreiner. Many of you are familiar with Patrick. He, he really is truly a a sort of a rising voice in, um, theology today. And also beyond that, and you'll get this in, uh, the conversation. He's one of those rare theologians, academics who doesn't come across as a theologian academic you know he just he's got he he watches television shows and enjoys film and you know like he's he's just a well-balanced guy but um he's a he's a really thoughtful uh, biblically minded a uh, very compelling voice um and again he's been on faculty at western seminary um up until this summer actually as associate professor of new testament language and literature and uh, this fall he's moving on to midwestern theological seminary um and where he'll be joining the, the faculty there as associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology. So he's making that move in early August. But um, he's also an author. He's written several books. And on this episode, Isaac and I chat with him about his latest book, which is about the ascension of Jesus, which is a an often ignored and yet crucially important part of um, the gospel story. And you might not think that, you know, right away. It's like, well, Jesus came back to life, resurrection. That's all that matters, right? Certainly resurrection is key, of course. Uh, but but the ascension, which um, we'll get into this in the episode, it's actually mentioned in every major Christian creed that we hold to today. And yet it's something we don't hardly, we hardly ever talk about it. Uh, and most of it, I think, is because we think it's weird, right? Isaac, you, you mentioned it in the episode, but it's just a weird thing to imagine Jesus floating up in the sky on a cloud somewhere. Uh, and yet um, it's so much more than that. And it holds uh, the key, I think, in so many ways to both our hope as followers of Jesus and the mission that we carry um, deep in our bones as we follow Jesus into the world. So uh, we, this is a fascinating conversation and really a, a surprisingly hopeful and inspiring conversation on the ascension of Christ. Um, so uh, we hope you enjoy it. We think you will. Here is our chat with Patrick Schreiner. Patrick, what is up, man? Glad to have you on the podcast. Great to be here, Jay and Isaac. You got a new book coming out about a month away. So pre-orders are up on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now called The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. I want to start off kind of uh, basic and ask a question about the actual title. And then a follow-up will be with the, the subtitle. So first, super basic, The Ascension of Christ. What are we actually talking about when we talk about the ascension event yeah yeah well first i want to say thanks for the podcast uh i appreciate it i've been listening to it for a while and you guys do a great job and just the connection with western that we have uh, i really appreciate what you guys are doing over here so uh thanks for having me on and thanks for what you're doing you guys do great interviews and um thank you. i list podcasts i say hey you should go check out the regen podcast so uh thank you appreciate it you guys are doing good work um so yeah ascension you probably you know, this is probably not the title that everyone's going to click on and be like, yeah, I really want to talk about the Ascension. I'm really, <laughs> really excited about the Ascension here. But the Ascension simply refers to the rising of Christ into the air, how Jesus gets to heaven. Um, and so in, in the Bible, you actually have a few, two different terms that are used. Ascension and session is another term, not, not in the scriptures that we actually use, but more in systematics, which is the sitting of Christ where he sits at the right hand of the Father. But usually when we talk about the Ascension, uh, we, we actually are referring to both of them so that Jesus left the earth in his body and people watched him go. And, <laughs> and that comes in Acts 1, 9 through 11 and the end of Luke and Luke 24. It's narrated. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of the things I say in my book, it's a weird event, right? To think about what's happening. I remember um, I preached on uh, this event 
uh, maybe it was a few years ago now. And I was walking around a beautiful Portland day through a park, praying over my sermon, just thinking through what I was going to say and, and praying. I looked up into the sky and it was one of those, one of those days where you could see the clouds and the sky at the same time, like these big clouds and the light was shining on it. And I thought, man, it must've been weird to watch (laughs) Jesus go up into the air. And then it said like a cloud covered him. And was it like watching a balloon? You know, like, you know, when you watch a balloon go up in the air, you're like, I can still see it. No, no, maybe that's not him anymore. And and then I began yeah. to ask myself questions like, um, you know, how fast do you think he went up? You know, like the speed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? That's a weird thing I, to absolutely. think about. I mean, I'm going to talk about how important this thing is. And I, I don't mean to like just start in a, a light note, but like, was it like 30 miles an hour or was it more like five? <laughs> You know, like, or two, like so slow that they were like, all right, what's going on here? Yeah. And as you said, does he keep going up like the balloon to you can't see him or did he get like 30? And as a little kid, it was like, I not about 30, 40, 50 feet. Then he like, and the, the magic comes out and he fades <laughs> to another dimension. Wasn't there an old movie too with the guy with the space like thing or the, um, you know, you know what I'm talking about? The, he had like the, the jet pack on. Oh, There's the a rocketeer? Rock- Rocketeer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah. Like if people were thinking of that or super fast and you know, we have questions this is one of the reasons I it's neglected is because it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird event. Like <laughs> why didn't he need a NASA spacesuit? Like look like, I mean, Neil Armstrong up there, right? Like what's, what's going on there. There's a lot of questions about the Ascension, which um, kind of transitions into neglect. It's a neglected doctrine and neglected event because the resurrection we're like, yeah, that makes sense. He lives now forever. And that's great. But leaving the earth, <laughs> we've got yeah. questions like, why not stay? And that's, I think the disciples are wondering the same thing in some sense when they ask, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he's like, no, I, I got to go. I got to go right now. <laughs> and so I think in many ways, we're like the disciples and we're looking at the ascension. We look at the scriptures and we notice the ascension. We're like, hmm, like, why, why is that good news? Why is it good that he left? Because isn't it best that we're with him? bodily that we know in new heavens new earth that's the way it's going to be and so i think subconsciously maybe the topic doesn't arise because we honestly have some questions about why it is good news yeah and there is a level as you said just uh, weirdness in the scripture can often transition to almost being ashamed is too strong of a word but there's certain miraculous elements that Christians in a modern world kind of, we don't know what to do with that. So it's like, you right. know, if a donkey talk, we don't have a problem with like certain types of miracles that fit into our categories, but right. flying Jesus doesn't fit into the flying category. Middle-aged Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, as you mentioned in your book, every major Christian creed yeah, makes sure to include this. Right. The idea that Christ ascended and is now reigning is essential talk about how that how the those two layers are connected it's not just that he flew into the sky but there's something taking place with an installment or installation yeah yeah so one of the things that is somewhat confusing when we come to the narration of the ascent in in luke and in acts is that they just kind of recount that it happened they're like, and when he had said these things, they were looking and he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing, the angels came down and they said, hey, why are you standing looking into heaven? You got to get going on your mission, basically, is what they say. So there's not a lot of theology there, like in terms of like, this is why it happens. This is what's going on. So I think if, if we're just reading the New Testament, again, we're a little confused. But what really helped me is looking to the Old Testament and understanding and and even looking forward in the New Testament, understanding what the implications of that were. So the the key text is Daniel 7, 13 to 14. We could go to a bunch of texts, but the one text that is so key in terms of what happened is when the Son of Man uh, comes with the clouds of heaven and is presented before the Ancient of Days, who is the Father, right? So the Son of Man is the Son and the Ancient of Days is the Father. And verse 14 is the key verse. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
and all that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So why did he go up into the heavens? Why is he seated at the right hand of the father? Well, it's because he's given dominion. That is, that is his, uh, that is the coronation in some sense of the king. That is the installment of the king. That is the authorization of the king. So you think back in Greco-Roman times, when a king was installed, they would bring him up on the steps and they would seat him upon the throne and the whole city would look out on him and say, this is our new king, or they would acknowledge that this is the new king. In the same way, but Natan, this is what's key, he's not installed on an earthly throne. <laughs> he's installed in the heavenly throne, which rules over the earth, but it's not on the earth, showing that he has a plan to unite heaven and earth. So he rules over all kingdoms, over all peoples, over all nations, over all languages, because it is in heaven, because it is in heaven, which, uh, I mean, I, I could keep going, but in terms of tying that to acts, that's why we have a mission to all nations. Hmm. That's why we invite all people in because we have a King of the whole universe. I think sometimes when we read our Bible, we push that back too quickly into, well, yeah, Jesus had a mission to all nations because he went to Gentiles on the earth. In some sense, that was, I'm going to use a bigger word, but a proleptic kind of foreshadowing of what was to come. He was inviting people in from the nations and that even happened in the old Testament. But the mission to the nations doesn't really, doesn't really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it's not really, I can't think of the word, like inaugurated or classified until he's actually installed as the Lord of all. And then he welcomes all people to his side in a more, I guess that in a more official sense is what I'm mm -hmm. trying to say. So now, now I'm riffing on it, but you kind of get what I'm saying in terms of yeah. the yeah. it's installation of the king. Patrick, I want to ask you uh, a question about um, just going back a little bit. You know, we, we do talk a lot about resurrection, uh, yeah. even in our churches. You know, we talk a lot about resurrection for folks who are listening. That That's actually a much more familiar concept or idea. And uh, the way you're describing the ascension, which, like Isaac said, you mentioned in the book, every major Christian creed um, notes the ascension, and there is a reason for that, which you've so so beautifully and powerfully sort of um, laid out just now. Uh, it strikes me as a pastor and as a church leader that um, our ignoring of the ascension and our real strong emphasis only on the resurrection actually expresses itself in the way we even think about what it looks like to be a Christian today. And what I mean by that is resurrection means new life. And it's actually easy to think of resurrection's impact on me as an individual and what I receive, you know, the gift of resurrected life. Um, yeah. But the ascension, which, you know, I, I love the Daniel 7 connection, which essentially points our eyes, it lifts our gaze up to Jesus, not as simply as the resurrected one, but as the king who rules and reigns, who holds dominion, which then compels us to live uh, on mission, essentially, right, as his ambassadors um, to, to bring about sort of an awareness and an invitation into his rule and reign. Uh, I want I want to ask you along those lines, and I was uh, maybe I've put some words in your mouth, so I don't want to do that. But like, were you seeing that, or was there was there a reason why you decided, man, right now in this moment we're in, it matters that we think about and talk about the ascension. Uh, was there a connection there for you on a sort of pastoral level? I know you live sort of in academia, but you also right. have the heart of a pastor and a preacher. Yeah. What yeah. were you seeing sort of in just the everyday lives of people who are trying to follow Jesus that made you go, we have to talk about the ascension. We have to talk about Jesus as king uh, and his dominion over all things. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I could riff on a lot of what you said, and, and you didn't put any words in my mouth. I think that's exactly right. One of the things you see in the creeds and in the New Testament is that they don't combine the resurrection and ascension. There's actually some separation showing that it's a different event. So you think of even at the end of John when Mary's clinging to Jesus, and he's like, don't cling to me because I need to ascend to the Father. There's a clear differentiation in terms of what happened in the resurrection and the ascension. So I, I do think we need to distinguish between the two. And as you said, 
I totally agree that the resurrection affirms that Jesus lives forever and the ascension affirms that Jesus reigns forever. Mm. So pastorally, honestly, the ascension to me, it's, it's such an important event because our confession is Jesus is Lord. Like that is the basis of Christianity. That is the reason we have a new Testament. Yeah. <laughs> that is the reason we worship a King. So even to identify like one particular thing right now, for me, it was just, I'm, I'm continually impressed about the kingship of Christ that we are calling people to follow, to, to pledge their loyalty and allegiance to a new King. And in terms of our cultural moment, that's really helpful because the political spectrum is just all over the place. Yeah. And we have pledged our allegiance to someone else who is now in the heavens. That reign is truly there, but it hasn't been fully manifested upon the earth until the new heavens and new earth. So what we're calling people to is to recognize that there is, in one sense, now an unseen king. We can't see him any longer because he is in the heavens, but his rule is embodied in God's people, actually. As And how is it embodied? That might scare you. Like, oh, what are we supposed to do? Go on crusades? No, no, no. It's embodied as we follow him in sacrifice. How did he embody his rule upon the earth? He healed. He had compassion. He welcomed people. He was hospitable to people. And then he died on the cross for our sins. And so in the same way, I mean, this is Romans 12. We present our bodies as living sacrifices following him. I love Going back to Daniel 7. I love the connection that you have the son of man. This You could translate that. It's just the human one who is lifted up above the beasts that come out of the sea. What are the beasts? The beasts are the other kingdoms. And these other beasts are trampling on their people. They're, they're taking from their people. They're destroying their people. They're, chomp, they're chomping on their people. There's like that super mega beast who comes along, right? And, and, and what God does is he looks at them and he says, they're not worthy. They're not worthy. They have not shepherded my people in terms of even humanity, but there's a truly human one, one made after the image of Adam who sacrifices and therefore is given a, a dominion and a kingdom. So, and that's a long answer, but in terms of just the, the basic confession of Christians that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, King, whatever term you kind of want to throw in there, that... Mm. Everything comes from that. We we gather together because we have a king. We sing because we have a new king. We read the scriptures because we have a new king. We uh, we serve our communities because we have a new king. It it touches on every piece of application. You know what I mean? Just in terms of yeah. our life, this is um, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> like that. That's what we're we're waiting for. So, pastorally, I think I began speaking and preaching about it just because I, I want to impress people with the kingship of Jesus. I, 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 I go against or I rail against maybe too much the kind of individualistic, privatistic Christian culture where it's like me and Jesus in my Bible <laughs> that engenders a kind of political quietism and engenders a I can just do what I want. It's my own personal belief. Yeah, yes, it is personal. Yes, it is individual. He calls individuals to repent and believe, but it's so much more than that. And so when I speak about the ascension, I'm pu pushing people towards this is a public reality. This is a political reality. This is a reality that we're calling other people to recognize there is a new, true and good king. And we, we, we follow him. We want you to follow him, too, because that's where abundant life comes from. I'm only going to ask you to share one of these because there's there's a few in the book and and you have to buy the book to get the rest of these these nuggets. But uh, one of one of them is gold and it has to it touches on what we were just talking about this idea that Jesus is King, and that isn't just some isolated thing in the heavenlies, but it is an empowerment to the body of believers through the gift of the Spirit here on earth. But yeah. in in opening one of the chapters. You became a kindred spirit to me, man. We've known each other for, we don't, we don't know each other well. We have friends of friends, but when you brought up Hook in your book, I said, this Patrick dude, this is like a brother. He's like a brother. One of my favorite movies. <laughs> I just read in one of my favorite movies, Hook, and I'm like, let's go. Let's go, man. I'm ready. So you talk about how Hook demonstrates the ascension. <laughs> and the empowerment of a people. 
yeah. there's a few of these from movies. Uh, you got to get the book to get the rest of them. The Lion King's talked about um, for you pastors. You got a whole sermon series in these movies lined up, ready to go yeah, um, yeah. to illustrate this. What you just said uh, takes place in Hook like perfectly. It's there. It does. It does. So, do you mind breaking that down? Yeah, you got to go watch the YouTube clip, but I'll I'll try to do it as best as I can uh, through audio here. So yeah, one of my favorite movies, seen it so many times, is Hook. It's just a great movie. But there's a scene in Hook that I was thinking about as I was writing this book, and I went back and I watched it, and it's the scene where Peter learns to fly right where he comes back to neverland and he he for, he forgot everything but he learns to fly and, and there's this moment where he learns to fly and all the lost boys rally around him and they know that their leader is back so it's it's different in the sense right in the ascension he's leaving he's leaving them but but in peter pan he's actually coming back or in, in the hook he's coming back and so they they recognize as he ascends that he's their, their new leader who they can then go fight Hook and, and, and all the pirates, right? And so as he ascends, he actually comes back down to them and he gathers and, you know, there's that famous line, he draws the line in the yeah. sand with this gold sword and Rufio like falls on his knees before him and he says, it's a great line. You are the pan. You are the pan. <laughs> like I get chills every time I watch it. And like, then it's, all, you are the, it's the you are the Christ. You That's are the Christ. The there it is. There's your sermon illustration. <laughs> and, and they all gather around him, you know, and they, they all gather around him and they encircle him and they say, it's basically, it's time for mission. It's time to go, which I love that because that's Acts, right? They watch yep. him ascend and the angels come down and they say, it's time to go. Because what happens right before that is they're given their commission. Then he ascends and then they go into Jerusalem and they preach, uh, the spirit falls, right? And they preach of the good news of Jesus. And so in the same way, the ascension of Christ is not just about his kingship, but it's about his empowering his followers with the Holy Spirit. As they watch him ascend, they recognize we get a double portion of his spirit. So there's a key Old Testament text, 2 Kings 2, where Elijah and Elisha, you have that strange text where Elijah ascends on that chariot and Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. And uh, Elijah says to him, you won't receive that unless you watch me ascend. I think that's point us forward to Jesus. The apostles watched him ascend and they get and we get now a double portion of his spirit, which is why it's it's better news that he leaves. Mm -hmm. So it's why is it better that Jesus goes away? Because we get this spirit. Jesus, you hate to put the word Jesus in limited, but I'm about to use it. Jesus was limited by space and time by virtue of his body. But we are now, as the church, his body, who have the same spirit of Jesus resting upon us, who can go out and do the same works that he did and speak the same word that he did, announce the kingdom. And so it's better that he goes away because you know how far he traveled? Not very far. Pretty small piece of land, <laughs> like when he was on the earth, right? But guess, how, guess where his followers are? China, Jamaica, North America, South America right? Japan, yeah. like every area of the earth is now covered with spirit filled Jesus followers who are connected to the head. We are his body. So it, it is better if he goes away. Yeah. That's so, a, yeah. that's a profound point. Uh, again, getting back to mission, I love the pan illustration. I mean, there's like all sorts of, uh, sports analogies here with, you know, that whole feeling of like, if you're best player, this is like finish the, the Michael Jordan documentary, the last, yeah, dance. yeah, yeah. Last and, dance. Uh, you know, yeah. like love him or hate him. He was, he was like, not a nice guy, but there's definitely a visceral feeling you can tell with his teammates, whether he's on the floor or not on the floor. And it's not just like his skill. There's a sense of like, Oh, our potential and our capacity to perform um, and to achieve victory essentially just changes every the landscape changes when one right. person steps foot on the floor and there's this right. and uh the ascension um you know the way you're painting the picture you know there for for some who are listening uh, you know, we're using essentially the language of monarchy, which we're not necessarily super familiar with, you know, in uh, 21st century America, right? Here, we elect our leaders, they serve for four years or eight years, right? Every four years, we re sort of recycle through and, and sort of some of the power is with us. But it does, 
uh, it does point us in some ways to like um, inauguration, right? That's a word we're familiar with. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit more about that. You've sort of hinted at that a little bit in different Old Testament passages, but uh, you seem to indicate in the book and some of your teachings, like there, there. This is this is not just a one-time event that takes place post-resurrection in the New Testament, but there, um, there's a sort of foreshadowing to this moment. You've mentioned, you know, the Son of Man and this imagery yeah. we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, talk about that. Where, where do you see that sort of playing out? How, how important is that in the build-up to the Gospels, in particular to the resurrection and then the ascension? Is that something that we see sort of all throughout the what we call the Old Testament, um, yeah. Is it sort of interspersed here and there? How important of a motif is that, biblically speaking? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I do think it's central. Like, we looked at Daniel 7, which is like a hot spot of New Old Testament theology. Like, where, where do they keep going back to Daniel 7? What's another text that they keep going back to? It's Psalm 2, which, which speaks about, um, again, the coronation of, of Israel's king. But ultimately, Israel's king is, is Jesus, right? And so you look at a text like Psalm 2, 6 through 8, um, this is Yahweh speaking, and he says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So that, that's just talking about like an earthly sense. He sets the Israel, Israel's king on, on, the, on his hill, on Jerusalem's hill, right? On Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That, that can apply to David. He is the, the king, the son of Yahweh who rules upon the earth. But ultimately, this, this really helps us read our Bible. Ultimately, we know that that king, according to the New Testament, is Jesus. That he set his king on Zion, his holy hill, which is the heaven, the heavenly, heaven of heavens, right? And that you are my son today, I've begotten you. That's Jesus. And he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There it is again. So what I love about that text is you get actually the words that are said to Jesus when he goes up, right? <laughs> you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you everything now that you've accomplished all. That's the exact same thing that happens in Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted text in the New Testament from the Old Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I don't think the sitting there is like, you're just hanging out until the end, right? He's continuing to actively work in heaven. So one, one author that I read, um, which, which I love this statement, I thought it was so helpful just to get through this, is he said, we like to focus on what Jesus did and what he will do, and sometimes we neglect what Jesus is doing now. And I want to know what Jesus is doing now. So that's why I looked at it through prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet, he's building his church. As the priest, he's interceding for us as the king, he's reigning over all. He continues to work in heaven. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean he's not active. If you know in kingship, kind of Greco-Roman terms, to sit means to rule. To sit means to rule. You're ruling over all things. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Yes, you're king, and you continue to rule from the heavens. Again, we're, we're waiting, though, until all enemies are his footstool. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. That will happen on the final day when all enemies become his footstool. So we still have this interim time. Now, I've, I've already forgotten your question, but I feel like I'm at least. No, I kind great. Of got to it. Yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> the, yeah. That's, you talk about you call them shadow stories, that there's all these shadow stories in the Old Testament that are giving you the, the glimpses and the foreshadows of what will ultimately be fulfilled in the penultimate prophet, priest, king. In Jesus. Um, and it's important to note what, what you said is the sitting imagery is lost on modern ears. Yep. When someone is sitting somewhere, we don't think of them being active. It's right. a passive experience for the modern person. Mm -hmm. But sitting is an active role of ruling and reigning and having dominion. That's and so, right. so much of the kingship language is as lost as Jay pointed out, where we don't even have kings. More important, you know, probably even more significant than that, Jay and I have talked about how we don't even not only have kings, but we don't like kings by nature. Like the, Americans, <laughs> the American DNA, I always joke around that, like, if you show, if you watch Les Mis with people who have never seen it, they don't know, they don't know the history of anything. They just know that whoever's fighting the king, we like them. We're on their team, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the heart of the Christian message is, is not 
democracy. Right. Yeah. Did you ever watch the show The Crown? Mm-hmm. No, no. Oh, it's great. It's on Netflix. Yeah. It's about Queen Queen Elizabeth. And um, there's a scene at the end, I think, of the first season where the queen mother sits the young queen down. And the young queen's like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I have no desire to rule right now. And the queen mother looks at her and she says, you were appointed by God. You were not appointed in a court. You were appointed in a church. This is a sacred right. You don't get to choose whether you do this or not, which, you know, that's on the earth. That's a whole nother debate. But as a Christian, I was like, whoa, there's a theology of kingship actually over there, right? (laughs) That I was like, that actually connects in terms of like, God has appointed his king over the whole universe. And the good news is he's a good king, right? He's the shepherd king. He's the Davidic king. I think one of the reasons we rail against it is because usually kings act poorly. Usually kings gather resources for themselves, send people to war. Everybody else goes destitute and they get all the riches. But not our king. Our king isn't like that. He, he was the homeless king who traveled around. Didn't even, he didn't even have any children. We are his children in that sense, like in, in terms of physical children. And so we, we need to reframe as Christians how we think about kingship because we have that true and perfect king. Yeah, it seems like that's a crucial point there that, you know, f- for us in the late modern world, when we think king or monarchy, we immediately have visions of like old paintings, Victorian paintings of like peasants and then the monarchs, right? And there's a divide and the peasants toil and labor and um, essentially funnel into the economy, which benefits the monarchy, that sort of thing, you know, and the whole hierarchy deal and that entire thing gets flipped uh in in the gospel and um to think about jesus as king in that way a king who doesn't uh rule over and take from the the masses but rather sort of becomes the foundation upon which we stand and and gives to us um it seems and this isn't even a question, just a thought coming to mind as, as you're talking about it. We lose so much of uh, the subversive power of the gospel if we, if we refuse to think of Jesus as king. If we don't think of him as a king, for, for a variety of missional reasons, but even uh, beyond that, just um, the, the, our sense of grace and God's love for us is lost if we don't mm-hmm. understand that that love's that love and grace comes to us by way, not of a fellow peasant, but by way of a king who actually right. holds dominion and rules and reigns over all things and yet chooses of his own accord to give of himself um, for us, right. who are peasants, essentially, yeah. Um, yeah. lifted and into a family. Yeah, That issue of goodness is so important. One of the things we've noticed at, at Regeneration Project probably in the last 10 years, just a shift in the apologetic task before us where apologetics primarily was like proving the historicity of this and the resurrection account, da, 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 da. And now it's like people, the issues are all about, is the God of Christianity good? Not whether he exists or not. They right. may even you may hear a young person, I'll give you that he probably exists, but I won't worship him because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And they're always tied into the character and person of God. So the issue of, yes, he's a king, but he's a good king is is the task for the church to demonstrate the goodness of the good king. That's right. And and I I totally agree with you there. The questions have totally completely changed. And it's do I, I mean, in Portland, it's, I don't even know if I want to follow your God. Like I, I, he, he might be homophobic. uh, He might be mean. He might be violent. I'm not sure what I think about him. But let's, in terms of framing it, right, in terms of the ascension, our good father sent the one true good king to pursue us. And in pursuing us, this king died in our place. And now he welcomes us into a new family where we can have flourishing and abundant life. And then when that son left, they both sent the spirit to empower us to continue to live in that life. That's, that's really good news. I mean, speak about the goodness of God in doing that. You don't have a mean, angry father up there saying, I'm so mad at you, so I'm going to provide my son 
to kind of bridge that gap. No, it's the father who sent the son out of his love for us. I mean, this is John three sixteen. for God so loved this world, right? He loved the world in this way that he sent his only son. God's desire is to be one with humanity. He wants to be with us like he was with us in the garden. And the way that that will come about is through Jesus, the son and receiving the spirit. And that I mean, that's the foundation of Christian faith. Like we, we believe in monotheism, but we're also Trinitarian, right? So we believe God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit. And that's actually what distinguishes us from many religions across the world. That and the fact that we don't need to work our way to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. He has paid it all for us. So uh, man, speaking about the goodness of, of Christianity, even what Jay was saying earlier, they, the, this is what the disciples expected in terms of kingship too. They wanted a guy with the sword. They wanted a guy on the white horse. He came on the donkey and they were like, what's going on? Like, this is not what we wanted. We wanted you to come and get rid of Rome. We wanted you to come and make sure we weren't taxed anymore. And he's like, you know what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what what is God's. And they were like, ah, that's not the the answer we're looking for here. Yeah. But then he still ascends showing this is the way the kingship is going to come about. This is the way you've misunderstood how it's going to come about. You've misunderstood. That doesn't mean he's not king. It means he's reframing what kingship means, which is what you guys were getting at. We have, I think, the wrong idea of kingship. So we need to continually go back to the scriptures and say, all right, redefine kingship for us, Jesus. Redefine what it means to follow you. And honestly, I mean, this is the pastoral side. We always need to be reformed and reframed in how we follow Jesus too, right? We need to always go back to the scriptures, back to tradition as well, and say, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Does it mean? Does that mean we get to be in power politically? Well, historically, no, <laughs> we don't get to be in power. We actually are usually the marginal people who are a prophetic voice upon the earth as a marginal group saying, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And although many people won't agree with us, we recognize it is good and true and beautiful. And we're going to win people over with that beautiful message. Yeah, I'm smiling because it's like my... I'm still asking the question of the disciples, but replace the disciples tribe with my tribe. I'm going like, Lord, when are you going to come down and lay the smack down, man? Take out all these, take, look at, look at the world, man. Come bring the sword. And it's like, bro, you still, you know, and Jesus tells us how much, how long have I been with you? And you still don't understand. And then like Jesus down looking at me, you've had 2000 years of, of Christianity, Isaac, and how much, much I tarry with you and your nonsense type of thing. But it's, it's the confrontational nature of the gospel is that like every day you have to preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself what, what is the heart of it? And it's the good King dying for his enemies rather than, yeah. than killing them. That's um, right. And so, yeah, I'm just laughing. Cause like, I, I haven't learned much and that, you know, yeah. and that's the, the, the human nature side of, side okay. of thing, pa- Patrick, how, and this is where maybe we turn and get incredibly, uh, relevant and pastoral since we've already begun that turn. What does the doctrine of the ascension speak to? How does it speak to like our moment? And by our moment, I mean like today, like we have America more divided than it's been in my lifetime. You have people incredibly angry. You have people who are scared. You have people who have lost their jobs. People are going to lose their jobs. Yeah. What does the ascension have to tell us today? Yeah. Well, I think it gives us great comfort in a time of despair for many people uh, in terms of health situations, in terms of financial um, heartache, in terms of uh, division in our country. It gives us great comfort because we recognize that our king has been installed and that he is ruling and reigning over all. And none of this is outside of his purview. And so we can take great comfort in the fact that he knows what is happening and he can sympathize with us because he lived on this earth. And so he knows what we are going through intimately, very intimately. I mean, I was watching that show, The Chosen. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of the television series on Jesus. And they had a scene with the leper, him healing the leper. And the way just they, they portrayed it, it was powerful. It was really powerful and it just, it connected in terms of, uh, maybe this is a bad connection, in terms of the coronavirus, just him coming down and putting his healing hand upon people and saying, this is why I'm here. And so he knows what we're going through in terms of health situations and he can heal us. And 
we are waiting for that. In, in many ways, it reminds us we're not to the end yet. And as Americans, just to be really honest, and I'm speaking, we have so many comforts, we're tempted to think like, this is it. Like, we don't need anything yeah. else. But, yeah. you know, maybe he's shaking us up right now. Maybe he's giving us, I like to say 2020 vision right now. It's 2020, right? We need a new 2020 vision right now. And so this is what, uh, I mean, to get to a biblical term, apocalypses do, right? <laughs> I don't want to get yeah. into whether this is revelation. <laughs> But yeah, what yeah. I am mean is it's, it, it is revealing things to us. Uh, it's revealing that, you know, things might not be as stable as we thought. Things on this earth. And so we, that's a time to call people to say, you, you know where stability is found. It's, it's found yeah. in the one who's reigning. And then in terms of the r- racial thing as well that, that's happening just across the country, uh, what does is, what is Paul, what does Peter keep calling people to be unified around that king? Like, because he has been installed over all nations, there should be no longer any division between Jew and Gentile. So therefore, we're calling people to be unified around this figure who calls all people to come to him. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just go to Ephesians 2 and even read through that in terms of... The whole, all of Ephesians 1 is about we have this king who has now been installed and we are actually seated with him. And then he says, therefore, Jews and Gentiles, get along. Yep. <laughs> that barrier has been broken down. And so racial reconciliation or whatever term you need to put on it should. OK, let me pause and just say we shouldn't have just been talking about this when culture start, starts talking about this. What always makes me mad is that we follow culture. Now, maybe we, some people were talking about, but we weren't talking about it in the same way. We should be on the front lines of talking about this in the church. We should be the first people to talk about. Somebody put on Twitter the other day. I thought this was a great point. Um, if you just talk about this issue when the world talks about, that's just another form of worldliness. Yep. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just yeah. following the world. Now, what I'm what I'm not saying is that I think it's actually good that we talk about it, but we should be talking about before protests are going on, before yeah. like before all this is happening, because we had, gosh, we had, I don't want to get too political, but we had a bunch of things happen before George, George Floyd. There was, there was a lot of things coming out before George Floyd happened, and the church should have been speaking about this. So now I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we are speaking about it, but it also pains me that we weren't on the front lines as the body of Christ saying, how can we come together on this? How can the church serve in these ways? And I don't think there's easy answers. I don't have all the answers, but um, we recognize that that the King unites his people. That's what the Messiah does. And then a final point I'd say in terms of a word of comfort is we remember that we have our King who intercedes our, our priest who intercedes for us as we fail and as we don't know what to ask and what to say and what to do. And I'm sure as pastors, you feel that right now. (laughs) What do we say? What do we do? Well, we remember he's seated at the right hand of the father and he is turning to the father and saying, as the high priest did, uh, these are my people. They're on my breastplate. They're represented here. And, and, And I'm pleading for them. I'm not ashamed of them. I am for them. And this is what they need at this time. So as you don't know what to pray. Remember, he is praying for us and mm. and in us, and and that is amazing comfort as we come before the Father. It, and maybe you don't know what's happening in this country. Maybe you're upset. Maybe you don't know what to think. And just remember, as you fall on your face before the Father, ah, oh, Jesus is there interceding for me. He's interceding for me. Um, Romans eight, like there's groans that are happening that the Spirit even helps us with there. And so ah, it's amazingly practical. Mm. Yeah, the um, the scriptures gave us the equipment to address all of these issues before they became boiling points, and we've just neglected to do so. So, one of the things that I'm trying to instill in in the congregation that I pastor is like we we shouldn't have to be reactionary or wait for something when the beginning of our story begins with God making image bearers first. And then two, where the plot really starts to go forward is you, 
when God chooses Abraham, he chooses Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And then all the Psalms talk about all the nations coming. And then you have Jesus giving the great commission for all the nations. And then our story ends with all the nations being gathered around the throne of the lamb, giving him glory and praise and honor. So it's not like a side point. And that's, that's I think what you're hitting on is the idea of the nations being united under Jesus isn't like a side point that's talked about in, in Ephesians chapter two only. It's like, no, Ephesians chapter two sets it up as the great mystery concealed before the right. ages. And now, now it's been revealed. But I like the term you use, the shadow stories. They were all there. Everything was leading up to this. It's not a side point. Abraham is chosen to be the person whose family will bring the nations before the one true good king. Yeah. And so all of this then is the term we've been using inaugurated at the installation of Jesus in the ascension. And, and that is why this is so important. And we, we recommend um, the book it's out. It's, you can pre-order it's a month, month away still, but I, I went to Amazon today. They got the picture up um, pre-orders are being taken. And then you can uh, listen to a couple of the other movie examples. <laughs> um, yeah. We won't share those yet. You got to read the book for those. Got to read the book. Um, but for here, more when I watch Hook and I see them lost boys battling, I'm just gonna say that's the church fighting the serpent right there, man. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for having me. It was a great talking to you, and, and blessings to you guys in this time. Yeah, tell us, tell it, tell the listeners where they can find you if they want to, con, you know, find. Exactly. I'm obviously Amazon, but you got your own web page. What's the URL? How can you we? No, just I guess Twitter is the best place to go. I just. Uh, I'm kind of reframing a website that I have. So uh, PJ Schreiner on Twitter with a dash in there somewhere. I think PJ Schreiner, you can, you can find me on Twitter. Um, and then Facebook, I, th I think I'm on there still. I don't know. I never check that thing anymore. Yeah. So. Your Twitter game's good though, man. You give a lot of accidental <laughs> nuggets for free on there. If you're looking for some good accidental right. nuggets, some connections to the Septuagint, et cetera, man, you make sure to follow Patrick on there. Yeah, we'll we'll link all that in the show notes so folks can can find you, Patrick. We uh, yeah, we're man, we're so appreciative of you. Your voice is uh, crucially important for the church. Um, you're one of those rare voices that's I think bridging the gap between you know academia and uh, us common folks. So really appreciate it, and I appreciate your work. Because I'm your a time. common folk in academia. Because I, I need <laughs> to bring it down for myself. You know, I I, I need the simple stuff here. <laughs> that's right. Cool. Thanks yeah. so much, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys.